Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone in between. Welcome to Everys, the podcast where we talk about everything European politics. Because where else in the world would you get a conservative MEP in an illegal gangbang orgy? Each episode, we take a topic in European politics that we think you should care about and break it down into small little bite-sized pieces that our anxiety-ridden millennial minds can actually digest. I'm Powerful Sami, and I'll be your Everys moderator. I don't know shit about European politics or how they work for that matter, but that's why I'm here. And I'm Natalie, a freelance writer and editor based in Bonn, Germany. I'm an EU citizen hailing from the majestic Mediterranean island of Cyprus and a self-proclaimed political junkie. No issues too big, no questions too stupid. We don't have any clue what the fuck we're doing, but we're going to figure it out together. This is Evries, making European politics sexy. Just 11 days after taking office, the president of the EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, set forward a pretty ballsy set of policy initiatives that sent MEPs into a frenzy. This is Europe's man on the moon moment, von der Leyen said at the time, unveiling the most aggressive climate strategy by the European Commission to date. She defined three key points. Firstly, to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050 to decouple economic growth from resource use, and finally, the notion that no person and no place is left behind. That day marked the birth of the one trillion euro European Green Deal, and with it, the promise that the EU would lead the world into a bright green future, improving the quality of Europe's water, air, and health for its citizens, all the while continuing economic growth and prosperity. Our goal is to reconcile the economy with our planet, to reconcile the way we produce, the way we consume with our planet, and to make it work with our people, von der Leyen said. One year later, and the 2050 carbon neutrality target has now enshrined into European law, with every member state legally obligated to actively work towards and eventually achieve it, with the exception of Poland, of course, which protested that the target is simply unachievable as the country relies too heavily on coal as an energy resource. So, what is the European Green Deal? In this episode, we're unpacking the ambitious proposal, examining what its targets are, and taking a close look at just how the European Union plans on fulfilling its promises. We also have a very special guest with us today, Alex Falk, a climate activist and Green Party member based in Cologne, Germany who spoke to us about whether the European Green Deal is ambitious enough, if he's optimistic about it, and what we as European citizens can do at a local level to have a positive impact on our climate. So make sure you stick around for that. So let's get straight into it. The European Green Deal promises carbon neutrality by 2050. What is carbon neutrality and how does one achieve it? So carbon neutrality is the state in which an economy reaches net zero emissions, which means its carbon dioxide emissions are either equal to or less than carbon negative activity. Or even more ambitiously, carbon dioxide emissions have been eliminated altogether. Now, there are two ways to achieve this. The first is through carbon offsetting, 
whereby, for example, a company that carries out carbon-heavy economic activity is obliged to offset that by investing in climate-positive projects, like planting trees, for example, or expanding renewable energy use. Now, the second way is to achieve carbon neutrality by achieving a so-called post-carbon economy. So eliminating carbon emissions altogether. Now, while the European Green Deal is an ambitious one, a post-carbon EU is looking a tad too utopian. So carbon offsetting is probably the most realistic route. But why is carbon reduction not enough then? What makes reaching carbon neutrality so important? The ultimate goal is to limit global temperature rises between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels, which is crucial in order to limit the catastrophic effects of global warming. Now, this target was originally defined by the 2015 Paris Agreement, of which the EU is a signatory. So while the goal isn't new, it has now become officially legally binding, as you said earlier. Now, according to the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, the only way to limit global warming to between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius is by achieving carbon neutrality by around 2050. So that's why it's so important. Now, anything above that threshold will effectively make our planet uninhabitable for the majority of life on Earth. Just for context, a recent report by the UN found that the Earth is already at 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than pre-industrial levels. And with that, we've already seen the warmest decade on record between 2010 and 2019. But even with a record number of forest fires, more frequent and longer heat waves, wildlife displacement, and I don't know, other dramatic natural phenomena we've already seen, that's really only a taste of what could come should we see higher temperature rises in the future. I mean, at our current rate, the UN states were on track to reach a between three and five degree Celsius increase by the end of the century. And how does the European Union plan on going about this? So with this 2050 goal in mind, the European Commission plans to carry out a huge overhaul of European legislation, leaving no stone unturned, as von der Leyen said. The deal is broken down into eight policy areas covering things like energy, agriculture, mobility, and much more. Now, each area contains other so-called mini-targets, which member states work towards to achieve the ultimate goal of carbon neutrality. Now, understanding what each policy area contains is crucial in order to understand how the EU plans on making the deal work at all. But listing all eight of them on this podcast would probably make for a pretty boring episode. So we kind of came up with an alternative solution. Whenever you guys are listening to this, you'll be able to find some helpful infographics on our Instagram page at Everyspod where we tried to break down each policy area and, you know, just explain them as simply as possible. So make sure you check that out. So what are the most important parts then? What is it about the European Green Deal that makes it so ambitious in the first place? 
Well, first and foremost, it's carbon reduction targets. While other green policy agreements across the globe, like in Japan and the UK, have also set the same goal of carbon neutrality by 2050, the European Green Deal would make Europe the first continent to do so. This would make a huge difference on a really a global scale as the EU keeps upping itself with its ambitions as well, with its 2030 carbon reduction goal being raised from 40% to 55% just this month. And most importantly, the European Green Deal and its orchestrators are adamant not on completely disrupting, but rather adjusting our current consumer behavior to a future in which economic growth and protecting our planet go hand in hand. And what's even sort of nicer is that the Climate Action Tracker, an independent NGO that tracks states' compliance with the Paris Agreement through scientific analysis, I mean, they're actually quite optimistic about the deal as well. In a report from this November, which followed the U.S. elections, the Climate Action Tracker said that paired with efforts from Biden's incoming administration and recent climate policy adopted by China, Japan, South and South Korea, the European Green Deal puts the Paris Agreement 1.5 degree target within striking distance, as long as all parties actually comply with their commitments, of course. So we mentioned before that one of the goals of this deal is um, for the EU to decouple the economy or the economic growth from harmful economic practices. How does the EU plan on going about this? So the European Green Deal plans on decarbonizing electricity, transport, heating, industry, you name it. And they're going to do this through a strategy they call sector integration, with the ultimate goal of turning climate and sustainability issues into opportunities. Now, sectoral integration means coupling energy-heavy sectors like construction, transport, and and industry with the power-producing sector through smart infrastructure. And this would basically result in a more widespread use of renewable energy and thus the eventual decarbonization of the economy. They also mentioned the adoption of a circular economy with the ultimate goal of making all packaging either recyclable or reusable by 2030. Now, while the European Green Deal is undeniably a step into the right direction, it has still become subject to much criticism with NGOs, scientists, and climate activists saying the deal is actually not ambitious enough. So what are some of the concerns? There are way too many to list, honestly, but... The most controversial one, in my opinion, concerns fossil fuel subsidies. While the European Green Deal promises to eliminate EU subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, this is mentioned in their part about sustainable mobility, critics are wary to take the Commission's word for it. Now, although lawmakers voted in October to exclude the fossil fuel industry entirely from the 750 billion European coronavirus rescue package, They actually backtracked just one month later. So why did they backtrack on it? Well, fossil fuel and gas companies argued in a letter to the presidents of the European Commission, the European Council, and the Council of the EU that gas was a less damaging alternative to coal and was crucial to Europe's transition to a green economy. And believe it or not, the European Commission actually fell for this. (laughs) And 
as a result, effectively left the door open for these industries to expand their operations and infrastructure on the continent for years to come, partially on the EU taxpayers' dime. So basically, this was von der Leyen's commission's first opportunity to really put their money where their mouth is, and they fucked up. Yep. (laughs) I mean... Um, Annika Hedberg, who is the head of the Sustainable Prosperity for Europe program, she actually put it really nicely. Um, When the deal was first announced last year, she said, we have a goal that 25% of the EU budget will be spent on climate change, or sorry, climate action. What is done with the rest of the 75%? If that is being spent on harmful practices to climate, we don't achieve our goal. And she's kind of (laughs) right. Okay, so... We still have misguided funding. How about the proposals themselves? So NGOs and climate activists alike have generally expressed their disappointment with the deal. Greenpeace accused the Green Deal's proposals of being either too weak, half-baked, or missing altogether. And they're not wrong. I mean, ambitious as the European Green Deal's targets might be, that's all they are, targets. And Targets can easily be watered down when it comes to implementing them, especially in an intergovernmental institution like the EU, where individual member states might use the opportunity to bend green action to their own benefit. I mean, take the Common Agricultural Policy, or CAP, for example. The European Green Deal's section on agricultural sustainability promised to reevaluate CAP and have it promote social sustainability, whereby economic measures should contain socially inclusive provisions. But recent reforms failed to address some of its most problematic parts. Under CAP, farms receive EU-funded progressive subsidies per hectare, simply for owning a farm, which means larger farms owned by multinational corporations that carry out mass production receive huge funds even though they emit mammoth amounts of carbon dioxide and produce much food waste. So not really socially inclusive provisions, huh? Yep. (laughs) But, you know, after reforms were discussed and debated in the European Parliament, members of the Commission and climate activists alike, you know, they were actually disappointed to see that only a small amount of the funds, 20%, would be tied to the implementation of green practices. And for context, according to Eurostat, agriculture is responsible for 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions in the EU. So this part of the European Green Deal is very important. Kurt Vandenberger, the European Green Deal advisor to von der Leyen, said the misguided cap reforms showed that politicians are, and I quote, not necessarily convinced that they can win elections on such a platform of systemic transformation. Now, his statement was a hit towards EU politicians who, according to Vandenberger, have a priority of keeping large farmer voter bases in countries like Poland, Ireland, and France satisfied, even if that means that would be at the expense of our planet. So researching this episode got us a little bit overwhelmed. While the European Green Deal takes some absolutely necessary steps into the right direction, 
much of the criticism against it is legitimate and can get a little bit disheartening. So we thought we could cut through the noise by speaking to somebody who has pretty much dedicated their life to campaigning for a greener world to see what they think about the European Green Deal. Right. Okay. So we're recording right now. We can just um, warm up, as I said. So um, yeah, we can we could just start off by introducing ourselves. Uh, I'm Alex. I'm I don't know, a social media person. I try to um, inform myself about ways to be more climate friendly and how to act more towards a sustainable and social just future. And since last year, I've joined the Green Party here in Germany. And I'm currently um, part, kind of part of the city council of Cologne. So when we researched this episode about the European Green Deal, you know, both my brother and I kind of found ourselves on a, I guess, an emotional roller coaster, which you probably can relate to as a climate activist yourself, right? I mean, in hindsight, you know, it's it's pretty remarkable that our leaders in Brussels are, you know, finally, at least seemingly taking climate change seriously, right? Um, but then digging deeper, we kind of went down this I guess you could call it like a rabbit hole of despair. Um, but what what are your feelings about it, about the European Green Deal? Um, were you optimistic when you first heard about it? Uh, I was optimistic. And I think what you said is so true in a lot of senses that um, the policymakers finally understood that the people want climate protection and that we also need climate protection and that's why they decided to label everything green or sustainable or uh, climate friendly but as in a lot of things like when I first started doing my, my activism I fell into a lot of greenwashing traps um, for example uh, let's say Amazon is trying to sell you that they are a social or green company by implementing um, a donation model so that every time you buy something, a short amount goes into, I don't know, helping something. They, they don't even care where the donation goes. They're just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Ryan Ryanair did the same. They were like, they were like, um, you can donate one euro to um, towards carbon dioxide offsetting, and it's like, what? <laughs> oh, <like>, yeah. <laughs> and, and and the sad part is like, so few people are actually informing about, it, like, really digging deep into this thing, and that's why it works, and that's why greenwashing is not only a term, but it's a sad reality. And uh, I think the same thing happens with the Green New Deal. It's, mm -hmm. um, we have to be really careful and we have to really yeah, keep the pressure up so that the greenwashing aspect um, will only fill up like maybe a little bit because compromise is what makes democracy, <laughs> sadly. Of course, yeah. But let's, let's just hope that, that we're going to keep the attention Hi. Yeah. Um, and so many 
climate activists kind of like yourself, you know, they've they've said that the European Green Deal is too little too late, right? Mm-hmm. They they are basically criticizing its lack of ambition. Uh, Greenpeace very openly and famously said this. They were they have been a very loud critic of the European Green Deal since it was first announced in December last year. For example, we have these 2030 targets, right? They're they're smaller targets. At the moment they stand at reducing CO2 emissions by between 50 and 55% until 2030, with the long-term goal, of course, of carbon neutrality in 2050 in mind. Now, climate activists actually say that it's not enough. <laughs> um, what, do you, what do you think about that? Well, the problem is that, or the actual situation is not that climate activists say it isn't enough, because what climate activists say really doesn't matter that much. What matters most is what scientists say and scientists say it's not enough so we'll just repeat that (laughs) (laughs) that's a good answer (laughs) yeah um what what we have to say here is that the green new deal is still not like finished it's it's still in um negotiations and at the moment i think uh if i'm if i'm not mistakenly there is some ambition, especially inside of the European Greens, and I think it was already passed in about a month ago to change the 55% targets to 60%, which would be um, great, or at least like, better <laughs> than 55 Yeah, I mean, this is also something that we discussed with my brother, how there is a lot of criticism, of course, but the European Commission is responding to it in one way or another, right? There is at least this this will to raise these targets, as you said, you know, they went from 40 to 50 and now to 60, apparently. (laughs) So, yeah, um, that is a pretty positive development. I'm not going to lie. Sure, sure. I mean, it's not like climate protection started two years ago when uh, Greta Thunberg decided to um, do a strike. Climate activists have been like on the streets for over 40 years now. And uh, it's it's sad that there's like that the last two years <laughs> were like the only years when something really started to change. But um, we have successfully implemented at least some okay people into the parliaments and I think we can slowly start to bear some fruits of it. But like, again, we need to um, emphasize that we need to keep the pressure on and pressure high and not be satisfied with anything that doesn't meet the um, scientists. I I don't know, like goal, it's it's not even their goal. It's just their job. We, (laughs) we, we, we told them, Hey, um, research stuff and tell us if something bad happens and they are telling it to us like over and over again and we're we're kind of like but are you sure (laughs) yeah (laughs) or if you're what was her name Uh, that one from ifd where she's just like just sue the sun anyway whatever oh yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) not gonna repeat her name not gonna make any (laughs) pre-press we don't we don't need that but yeah Yeah. that's uh who needs scientists right anyway um so going through the proposal, was there anything that maybe you would have liked to have seen included or covered that was not? Or did you actually see something that you didn't expect to be covered, but actually was? 
there are two main topics for me in um, like in my personal activist life. The one thing is agriculture because of like I mentioned it at the beginning, one of my first steps was like switching from a vegetarian diet to a, to a vegan diet or a plant-based diet. And um, I still think that switching how we produce our food mm -hmm. will have a huge impact on, on everything, right? Not only the climate, but also the environment, biodiversity, and even our health. So seeing that it's, wasn't uh, it is mentioned and it is like there but it isn't like enough um to actually change stuff for for, for example you have the you have the uh cap, common agriculture policy um which states that a huge part of the eu money goes to agricultural like um land and it's separated into these two big um, groups Mm -hmm. One part goes to like eco-friendly and uh, sustainable farmers, which is good. But the sad thing is, this is like a, a very, very small group. The other group, which is way larger, just simply goes to everyone who owns land. And that is a really weird approach because then somehow people who really don't need the money, like big uh Big, big farmers or big industries who just pretend to be farmers but are actually exploiting like land and animals um, are getting a huge chunk of money from the EU just because. And that's so weird. And I would have loved to see that included inside of the Green New Deal that we just change the whole cap in general and to really rethink what's um, inside of it. And... One topic that I was actually pleasantly surprised and uh, just, just because it's like one of my main topics in um, my personal like NGO activity um, is mm, in German, it's, it's Kreislaufwirtschaft. Oh, circular economy. Uh, circular economy is the term. Um, so, so I think it's, we need to tackle our waste problem because waste is essentially resources that we have wasted. And right now we can't afford to waste any resources. So we need to find out how, how can we stop things to be waste? How can we stop it from ever getting to that point? Um, and therefore we need a circular economy as soon as possible. So I was happy to see the term flying around. Uh, it's again, it's just something they've thrown in there without much behind it. They did put some sort of tangible goal that they want to make all packaging reusable or recyclable by 2030, but that probably is problematic in itself because we already have recyclable items, but it's still not really solving the waste problem because they're still wasted in the end, right? Yeah. The most important priority in introduction of a circular economy or now a way to a circular economy should always be to reduce waste or to reduce anything to be honest like uh, trying to trying to just be less because we over our overconsumption is so ridiculous like not only for the um, yeah climate and uh, the resources that have been wasted but also for all the uh, people that have or animals uh, for every living thing that's been exploited on the way to get this like especially e-waste like electronic waste which has been hugely um 
documented that there's been a lot of child labor happening there or a lot of just abusive relations happening to get these um, materials that you need for electronics. So seeing e-waste is a huge like hit in the face of everyone who was uh, yeah, being exploited. And this just makes it so sad. So yeah, um, I think these two are, are like my, my main main focuses at, at the moment. Okay. Um, actually, what what you were just saying kind of slides nicely into my next point. But um, I mean, this thing about consumerism. I don't know if you've heard of Tatio Müller. He's um, I've met him actually. You met him before. He's. I mean, I've been looking into his work just because of this episode, really. <laughs> Hey guys, this is Natalie from the future. I just realized that we, very rudely, forgot to properly introduce Tatia Müller, but um, he is the Senior Advisor for Climate Justice and International Politics at the Rosa Luxemburg uh, Research Center in Berlin, and he's had a lot to say on the European Green Deal, so that's what made him so interesting for us to mention. He's also very, um, very vocal about his uh, sort of condemnation of this of this mass consumerism that's been so embedded into Western culture. And I mean, he had a very interesting point uh, when the European Green Deal was was first introduced in December. He said he called it an economic plan, an economic growth plan, essentially. And he says that it's destined to fail because it, it just fails to address the core of our climate problem, right? It's calling for perpetual growth and, you know, perpetuating this sort of thirst uh, for consumerism and, and luxuries. And in the end, we could try to slap sort of green labels on it, but it, it, it's nothing. It's just, it looks nice, but it's all fairy tales. Do you agree with that statement? Should we all go and cry in our bedrooms and <laughs> call it a day? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think that that's what his point was. He doesn't want us to cry in our bedrooms. He definitely he wants not, us no, to no. do the opposite. Yeah, yeah. He wants us to yeah to to be more active. To be to be fair, I don't know exactly which points in the Green New Deal uh, he's talking about are like manifesting economic growth. It's, I don't think he was addressing the specific policy in the in the deal, but rather the nature of the deal in general. So even when uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, when she first announced the deal back in December 2019, she said that this was sort of Europe's way of, of proving that we can be a rich Western society, but still be green. And, you know, she said that we can decouple economic growth from resource use. I think what Müller's point is, is that, you know, by going into it with this attitude, we're kind of already failing because the problem is consumerism in the first place and not addressing this sort of capitalist identity of Europe. We can't really uh, address the climate problem in the first place. I think this was his point. Yeah. And I think that he has a point there. I would even say he's probably like even more uh, radical on, on that point that he's not um, blaming it on consumerism, but on 
capitalism in general, uh, which then in turn uh, leads to consumerism, because that's like what makes our economy work in a sense, <laughs> even though it doesn't like. Money makes the world go round, as they like to say. Our world, sure, but not for long. And it's just yeah. like, <laughs> I, I agree. I, I, <laughs> but we, ju we can just see right now that capitalism doesn't work. Like all of the problems that we are facing are based on our capitalistic structures. And that is just, it's just how it is. So, <laughs> so I, uh, I'll agree with him on that part. Like, um, the Green New Deal doesn't specify that we should change our economic system um, fundamentally. So if that's like his point, then I'll, I'll agree. I, th I still think that we need to do it. Like we still need a Green New Deal um, that works inside of our current system because overthrowing the economy, I think we're just not there yet. Like, so I'm, I'm just... Uh, like pragmatic here I'm, yeah. trying, I'm trying to be um, even though like most anti-caps would disagree and say no the the only pragmatic option would be overthrowing government and changing the economy but like in the in the general sense I'll I'll agree that capitalistic structures or a capitalistic system is like on the long run not healthy for everyone but I would still argue that we need some regulations that allow us to just prolong the situation because it's just so dire. Like just listening to climate scientists is uh, it's so heartbreaking sometimes when they're saying like, hey, the world's going to end in 10 years. What are you going to do about it? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and so, so even though I know it's just prolonging the, um, the problem, I, I still think we need that we need extra time to to figure things out so yeah that would be my answer i think that also goes back to what you said about how in a democracy you do have to make compromises right and um maybe this i mean you know looking at it the european green deal as much criticism as it is getting it is the most ambitious green policy or at least proposal that is out there at the moment at least, at least from 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 um Policymakers, or exactly, yeah, yeah, and we do need something like that. At least we do have it, and try to work it into the system that we have right now. But in the long run, long-term change would probably have to happen. Yeah, and we also need, yeah, and we also need like time to discuss what how that's going to look because I I still believe that democracy um, is good, like fundamentally, and, and we need to include people uh, in, in the process and that takes time. And the sad thing is we don't have time right now. So everything that buys us time would be amazing because then we can get more and more people to debate. Um, so you mentioned that you're a member of the Green Party in Cologne. What is the Green Party's position on the European Green Deal, at least here in Germany. Do you guys discuss it at all? To be honest, I'm I'm still so new in the uh, in the Green Party. Like I, I joined last year and I haven't 
been in any discussion about the Green New Deal, like in, inside of the, the the party, and and this might this might be a little bit like a, a not really satisfying answer, but that's also like some some type of criticism that I would just or that I realized like when researching for today was that uh, there are so many things happening on on a huge scale. Uh, and we aren't really discussing it that much, and we should change that. And that's the only like real answer I can give right now. There, but there probably are people in the European Green and uh, the, the German Green Party talking about the European Green Deal, but I just haven't been part of it, and I haven't heard of their statements. So at the moment, I can just say I don't know, but that I don't know is, is, is nagging me. And I, I realized that I should, I should know this. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you would like to see it discussed at a more local level as well? Yeah, or it, it might already be like discussed, but not um, openly enough. Because I think that's a huge, a huge problem in, in politics in general is that there are some really good things um, implemented into society, but no one knows about them. Uh, for example, in Cologne, we have this uh, subsidize for a program for greening um, your house. So, like our government, the city government gives you money if you want to put like plants on top of your building, if you want to build solar panels, if you want to, um, like, if you have only a stone garden, which is like really bad biodiversity, and you want to rip out the stones and put some plants into that, the city government actually like gives you money. They promote that. Um, but no one knows about those subsidized lists. So it's just like this, this, this pot of money sitting there um, for a really good cause, to be honest. But um, since no one knows that there are subsidized available for this type of things, um, the money is just lying around and there's a huge potential wasted. And I think there's a huge like marketing and communication error here. And I would like that to change. But yeah, there is a disconnect there with um, informing the members of the community with these sort of resources that they have available for that. That's an interesting point. Well, okay, then what does local activism look like? Um, is there anything maybe that our listeners could do at a sort of local le level to have an impact on climate policy at a perhaps European level? Yes, there is. There definitely is. Uh, the first thing, of course, everything, everyone is different. So like what I did maybe like isn't um, right for this person and uh, what this person does is maybe not right for me, but there are so many ways that you can engage in uh, climate activism that there's definitely at least one of them which um, suits you and suits your uh, everyday life. Um, what I like to uh, recommend as the first step is to join a group, like any any big group that you know of, Fridays for Future, Greenpeace. Um, in Germany, we have the BUND, which is like this huge environmental protection group, and um, or even like the Green Party. You don't have to be a member of it, but just getting in touch with them and seeing when they are doing public events, which is happening all the time, um, 
it's awesome because then you can surround yourself, even if it's just some newsletters, about what's going on. And then, like, if there is actually like some activity that you're interested in and it makes sense, then uh, you can join without having to uh, look for something. So I think just being inside of the the, the vicinity, inside of this huge eco bubble, um, is is a very uh, good first step because then you can find out what's what's going on around um, around you. And then like the, the typical stuff, changing your diet or changing how you consume, changing where and what you consume is, um, in my opinion, still a very, very powerful move because, of course, capitalism is the, um, is the, the problem. But until we fix that, we can still use capitalism against it by not being part of it or like trying to be as little part of it as possible by not consuming stuff from like big corporations or stuff that um, harms animals or harms uh, other people. So changing these um, habits or how you live your everyday life is something really crucial because even if you don't feel like going on the streets today because you are just overwhelmed or because it's a busy day or something, um, because you have changed your behavior before that, you're still doing something for the environment on that day just by being not a regular consumer. And uh, the third thing would be, uh, in my opinion, to engage politically. Um, it could be activism, like going on the streets and uh, or going online uh, at the moment because going on the streets is not really possible and just spreading knowledge about topics. Um, this doesn't have to really be so research intensive. It can be, um, but you can also always just share things that you find interesting and that's always helping the cause um, because there are there are so many people like not knowing what's going on and, and I myself learn something new every day. Um, there's there, there can't be enough people sharing stuff. So that and this is like the the, the, the minimum and to the, the maximum level would be to engage in a political party and maybe run for some offices because we desperately need cool people in the office. Um, which is something I learned uh, more and more even since I, I joined the political party. I just can't trust current policymakers anymore. And I don't, and I think many people would agree with me on that. So the only logical step was for me to, um, to, to get inside of it and do it myself. <laughs> and yeah, I, I would I, I, I made really great um, experiences there and I'm really happy that the experiences that I did um, were so like good, open and um, possible so that I, I, I could get to where I am today. Like I mentioned that since two or three days ago, I'm, I'm now a, a member of the city council of um, Cologne, which is amazing because now I get like all of the, the insights of what's going on and I can do my activism uh, a whole lot better. And yeah, maybe pave the way for other people to do the same. And yeah, those would be my top three.
That's awesome. That's a very good top three. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's that's really all the discussion points I had planned for today, but we can also be spontaneous. I mean, is there anything you would have liked to talk about today that we did not? I think we, we, we touched a little bit on that uh, in between, but I would like to like emphasize a little bit more on that on the, the the hope versus despair part <laughs> of, of climate. Um, because, because I get that like a lot. <laughs> it's a huge uh, roller coaster of, oh fuck, we're not gonna be able to make that. And yes, we can do this. There are people on the streets, there are policies being made. We can we can actually do this. <laughs> and um, there's there, they're going to be both for a long time, I guess. Like the, the fight is so so far from over at the moment uh, that we really need to take care of our mental health. And I think that's, that's something I would like to, to emphasize. <laughs> um, not using like mental health as an excuse to do nothing. Um, that's also wrong, um, in my opinion, because that also just makes the problem worse. Not only the, the environment, but also your own um, mental situation. Just not leaving it untreated is the worst thing you could do. But if you if you ever like be in this kind of state where you realize, ah, oh, shit, I'm doing too much, uh, or I'm doing too little, you can always get support because we are all like in this situation all the time, <laughs> and living in this society where we can help each other with that would be uh, so cool so just uh, reaching out to other people and realizing that this this is a team effort <laughs> i think is really important yeah that's a that's a very good hopeful note to end on definitely <laughs> um yeah thank you so much again for joining us have a lovely sunday bye bye cool so that's it from alex falk if you guys want to follow him on instagram he's got some great information on climate activism and climate friendly practices he's at gutmanish underscore alex on instagram um i can't really spell that so i'll uh i'll add his instagram account in the podcast description so make sure to check that out as well so that's it from Evries. if you like us please make sure to follow us on instagram at Every's Pod and subscribe to this podcast from whichever platform you are listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye.